You're tuned in to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Later in the broadcast, it's Kojo for Kids with illustrator and author Brian Pinckney. But first, today we celebrate Martin Luther, Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. Day at what we can only describe as an extraordinary moment in our country's history. Less than two weeks after a white supremacist mob stormed the Capitol, and two days before the country inaugurates a new president and vice president. And while MLK's legacy endures, we're also facing stark reminders of just how far we have to go. Joining us to discuss all this is Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, to discuss Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and what he means at this moment in our country's history, joining us is Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce, the dean of the Howard University School of Divinity, where she's also a professor of African-American religion and literature. Dr. Yolanda Pierce, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor to speak with you. Reverend Dr. Pierce, we're about to inaugurate a new president and vice president, the first vice president of color and the first woman in that role. But for many, it's a bittersweet milestone with the seat of our democracy on military lockdown. What are your thoughts on where we currently are as a country? It is indeed a bittersweet moment. The fact that those of us, particularly who live in the D.C. area, are watching as our entire city has become a military zone. On one hand, we acknowledge the amazing accomplishments of Senator Harris, soon to be Vice President Harris. But we also know that this has not been a peaceful transition of power. And so we're really, I think, taking seriously how fragile, in fact, democracy is, something that King always reminded us of. Two historic black churches were targeted by the earlier pro-Trump extremist gathering in December. Can we start with a little history around the rise of black churches in this country? What did that look like? African-American churches in the United States are founded as protest movements. They are founded as resistance against white supremacy and racism. Many African-Americans were allowed to worship in white churches if they sat in the back or if they sat in the balcony. But eventually, beginning with the African Methodist Episcopal Church and other denominations, African Americans created their own institutions, their own churches, their own ways of worship. Now, of course, they had been doing that in secret in what we call the invisible institution of the black church a long time before they had actual church buildings. But this is a movement. This is connected to a resistance to the ways in which African Americans have always experienced racism and discrimination in this country. And so it's not just the black church as a building, but the black church as a powerful resistance. It has been such a tragedy to see in Washington, D.C., the two African-American churches that were targeted, their Black Lives Matter signs ripped down, understanding that this fits in with the history of African-Americans being persecuted for their religious beliefs. We're talking with Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce, Dean of the Howard University School of Divinity, where she's also a professor of African-American religion and literature. We're talking about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on this, his day, so to speak. Dr. Pierce, parts of the Bible were used to justify oppression and slavery. How was this inconsistency addressed by the earliest black churches and their leaders? So the Bible has been used by people who 
are for and against any particular position since its founding, right? So within the United States, there were pro-slavery theologians and ministers who sought to use the Bible to justify enslavement. African-Americans always resisted this. They always resisted this interpretation. They pointed to liberating aspects of the text, how Jesus said that he came so that all could be free and free indeed. What African-Americans did is to read the fullness of the text and insist that at the heart of the gospel is a message of social justice. At the heart of the text, of the scripture, of the Bible, is this impetus for all people to not only be free, but to have dignity and their humanity. And so what they did was simply counter every single point that pro-slavery and later racist theologians would lift up in the text and they would offer the counterpoint to it. There were even some, like the grandmother of famed theologian Howard Thurman, who said, I won't even read the texts that are keeping me in bondage, that are insisting upon my silence, that are somehow trying to strip my humanity away. And so the African-American church has always read the text differently with the heart of humanity and human dignity at its center and core. But what took it out of the church buildings? What led to the rise of black preachers as both community and even national leaders like Dr. King? It started actually on the plantations of enslavement in which the African-American preacher was often the only person who could actually read, um, had literacy. And so that person became a community representative, became a spokesperson. And so we see that literally 250 years ago. So what Dr. King represents, we have seen in the black community since its very origins in this country, a minister who weds together politics and faith, that those two things have never been separate, that they've always existed hand in hand. To be a person of faith is to be political. And to be political, if you are a person of faith, is to put front and center your theological beliefs, but also your political beliefs. Much of the civil rights movement was birthed in black churches. Um, However, there were also black church leaders who opposed Dr. King and the civil rights movement. Can you talk about, you know, the fact is he was actually kicked out of the National Baptist Convention (laughs) by Reverend Joseph Jackson, but uh, can you talk about the role of black churches when um, during the course of history during that time? What led to some of that conflict? So I love that you point that out because I think that that is really important to note in our history. We have an iconic king that we think everyone loved, but during his day, King was not popular, even among African Americans and certainly among the larger white uh, Christian audience. People thought King was too radical. They thought he wanted too much too soon. That included African-Americans. That included some churches who, well, some of them actually feared the violence that could potentially happen in the wake of King coming to their pulpits. And that's, of course, historically true, that places that King visited, sometimes there was violence, sometimes there were bombings. And so there were some churches who resisted King only because they really feared that something would happen in their communities. But there were other Others who thought, well, you're asking for too much too soon. But King would often preach about the fierce urgency of now, saying mm-hmm. that, in fact, what we cannot do is this wait 
wait, wait, gradual approach. We had been trying that since 1865. That fierce urgency of now, and King insisted that rights were to be demanded, not politely asked for, but to be demanded, and that legislation would have to change. Some African-American churches were very fearful of that message, and he was not popular in his lifetime the way that we kind of think of him as a saint today. He would be quite surprised to know how many people <laughs> quote his words when they resisted his message in the 1960s. Not to mention all of the people who opposed his position on the Vietnam War, but that's another story. Absolutely, absolutely. Here is Teresa in Arlington, Virginia. Teresa, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Professor. I'm so glad to be able to hear you today. I did want to talk to you about the urgency of now because people remember his speech as I Have a Dream speech, and that was kind of, as I recall, impromptu. But his speech, the purpose was to get five main points um, of what had to change now. And when we're talking now, that was like 100 years after emancipation, and that now was, I believe, 1963. So he accomplished, or I guess, our society accomplished three out of five, but the first one was to absolutely prevent police violence on blacks. And the fifth point he made, which has not been accomplished, was that all blacks should have the right to, to vote and not have their vote suppressed. And right now we're seeing Black Lives Matter essentially because um, a black man was killed in public viewed millions times over, and it was police violence. That's the same thing that MLK talked about. And then you talk about suppression, his fifth point. Well, I mean, the fact that mostly black communities, their votes were the ones that were going to be uh, disenfranchised or just eliminated or erased by the 60 lawsuits. So what do you think about that? Because it's still here today. Dr. Pierce, of course, the I Have a Dream was not exactly impromptu. It was prompted by Mahalia Jackson, who said, tell him about the dream, Martin. But go ahead, please, Dr. Pierce. Yeah, so uh, regarding I Have a Dream, you're exactly correct that uh, this was something, a a rhetorical trope that he used in many of his sermons. And uh, Mahalia Jackson, during the March on Washington, prompted him um, as she felt the audience really, really needed that kind of motivation. But thank you to the caller. I would just absolutely agree with you that what to me seems to be such a disingenuous moment is that you have these political figures who are telling people, even today on Facebook and Twitter, oh, we recognize and acknowledge the wonderful legacy of Dr. King. Those were the same people who voted for or tried to figure out whether or not these majority black cities and their votes were fraudulent. So in fact, King was prophetic. And by prophetic, I mean that he was someone who spoke truth to power. He understood the suppression of the vote to be the number one tool that would undermine democracy. King was right in 1960. And King is right in 2021. Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce is the dean of the Howard University School of Divinity, where she's also a professor of African-American religion and literature. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Dr. Yolanda Pierce. I'm Kojo Namdi.
Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back. We're talking with Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce, Dean of the Howard's University School of Divinity, commemorating Martin Luther King Day at a time when we're witnessing ongoing racial injustice. Dr. Pierce, how can we improve the way we teach American history in schools so as not to, quoting here, flatten out the black experience, as you've said? And please explain what that means. One of the things I think is most important is for us to historically emphasize the rich religious diversity of early America. With Africans who came to this country, who were brought here in chains, we see the practice of many different religious traditions, something like 15, 20, 25% of enslaved Africans were practicing Muslims. Many of them were practicing Christians. Many of them also practiced traditional African religions. So what's important for me is that we really grab a hold of how religiously diverse African Americans have always been. That's important because by the time we look at King and the civil rights movement, we look at black Jewish coalitions, we look at African Americans in conversations with Hindu Americans, we are not just seeing American Christianity. What we see today is the way in which every time we talk about religious faith, people think we're talking about white American Christianity and the religious right. But there has always been an incredibly progressive religious leftist movement of which African Americans have been a part, along with our brothers and sisters who are Jewish Americans. And we have to talk about that. To say people of faith is not to say conservatives and religious right. Here now is Nata in North Carolina. Nata, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you so much, and it's a, an, a true pleasure and joy to hear uh, you speak with Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce. My question actually is um, in response to the question you posed right before the break about the relationship between um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Church. And I was wondering if uh, Dr. Pierce should be willing to speak to the issue of the role specifically of women and Black women, I know you have a new book coming out on, on grandmothers in the Black church and their stories. I um, noticed that you posted that on Twitter. And I'm really curious, given that the Black Lives Matter movement was led by um, Black women and gender nonconforming women, and given that it's King Day, uh, but that in honor of Martin Luther King, I always think we have to honor the hardworking black women in the churches who participated and mobilized, right, those um, boycotts. And so could you just speak to the image, the issue of the role specifically of black women and how Mm. that leaks since you're the first, you know, black woman dean at Howard um, Mm. University? Mm. Nate demonstrates that our callers are always ahead of me. You've got that new book coming out next month. It's called In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit. So you can include that in your response to Nate. <laughs> Thank you. That is such an important question. So when we just 
earlier mentioned Mahalia Jackson. One of the things we have to talk about is the ways in which African-American women funded the civil rights movement. Um, They didn't get to the March on Washington without African-American women, someone like Mahalia Jackson, who gave concerts and raised money for King. Um, But but even small things, African-American women who would cook in church basements and sell the fish and chicken dinners and use that money to support ministers and young people going to marches, going to rallies, bailing them out of jail. We have to talk about the black women who were themselves civil rights leaders, of course, like a Fannie Lou Hamer. But I want to connect it to Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement today. Many of the Black Lives Matter movement leaders are queer folks, they are women, they are gender nonconforming, you name it. Many of them would consider themselves spiritual, but not religious. I point that out to say that there's still a moral compass coming from the Black Lives Matter movement that is deeply spiritual and fits this legacy of the African-American religious tradition. We have to give respect to the women who were never given the credit, who were never given the byline, who were never given the opportunity to speak in their churches and even in institutional settings who are now demanding a place to speak and are also opening doors for others who have been marginalized, even within the African-American community itself. And thank you very much for your call, Neta. Let's move on to Charlie in Laytonsville, Maryland. Charlie, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, uh, Professor Pierce. I'd like to bring up the question of uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's uh, the current uh, pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, and uh, Senator-elect coming in, a uh, senator from Georgia. And the question I have is, how will his role as senator, do you think, affect his ability uh, to continue as minister of that church? Will he have to tone down uh, his interpretations of, uh... Are you asking whether you can walk and chew gum at the same time? But I don't know. I'll have, I'll have <laughs> Dr. Pierce respond. No, that's a great question because... All of his sermons will be scrutinized with a magnifying glass. And so anything that he says will be um, looked at with an extra, you know, careful lens. I will say that I believe that Dr. Warnock, who is preacher, now senator, pastor, but is also a scholar and holds a PhD in theology, is well able to hold together the tensions of the office and ministry. I think that he would argue, um, as I would as someone who does liberation and womanist theology, that telling the truth is the gospel. To speak truth is the gospel. And in as much as his platform will be the pulpit on Sunday morning or literally in the House, in the Senate, then in fact, his ability to speak truth, to represent his constituents, to talk about the evils of our day, including the industrial prison complex and, and all of the issues that we know will rise as part of his senatorial time, I think that he's going to be able to hold that together. It speaks to what I suggested earlier, that people of faith, it is imperative for them to speak from their positions of faith. Those are political positions in addition to being theological and ideological positions. I think Dr. Warnock's got this, and I look forward to seeing how this is going to unfold over the next two years of his term. Cole Bear in Capitol Heights, Maryland. Did Dr. Pierce just answer your question? Oh, sir. 
my question was regarding um, towards uh, when we look from Dr. King and then moving to the Reagan administration and prosperity gospel and African American church, the black church. Um, what does that look like when we think about the prosperity gospel and all that brings, and also this new way, just activism and Black Lives Matter movement? How does the black church balance all of that? Dr. Pierce. Great. That's, that's an excellent question. Thank you for bringing up the prosperity gospel. I recognize that the prosperity gospel is a modern movement in which individuals believe that the evidence of their blessing is the fact that they're um, prosperous. I think that this would be anathema. This would be heresy to Dr. King. Dr. King always believed in the power of human dignity, particularly for the poor. He spent his entire life and certainly the end of his life before he was killed, before he was assassinated, marching on behalf of the most marginalized, marching on behalf of sanitation workers, trying to dismantle the ways in which the rich and and the 1% have disproportionately harmed, whether it's harmed the environment, whether it has harmed the economy, whether it has harmed our ethos as a nation. Um, And so I would argue that for someone who centered himself in liberationist theology, that is the belief that God is on the side of the marginalized, the oppressed, and the least of these, that Dr. King would reject the prosperity gospel and instead embrace what his message has been for all along. When you uplift the least of the society, then everyone else is uplifted. And that definition of prosperity has nothing to do with the wealthy, but it has everything to do with those whose souls and hearts have leaned themselves toward justice. Well, clearly so many people want to speak with you and to speak about this topic, Dr. Pierce, that I'm going to ask you to stick around for a while longer after we take this short break. We won't take up the rest of your day, just a few more minutes of your time. I'm Kojo Nandi. Welcome back to our conversation with Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce, Dean of the Howard University School of Divinity, where we were talking about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. in the context of the black church. Here now is Jeff in Washington, D.C. Jeff, your turn. Hi, Dr. Pierce and Coach It was uh, good to talk to both of you again. My question is uh, around uh, comments that were uh, article that was basically printed about Reverend Warnock and Jeremiah Wright. As you know, uh, Dr. Pierce, uh, doc, we had uh, Dr. Wright Sunday, which is traditionally called uh, Preach, yesterday at Howard's Chapel. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about his relationship uh, with uh, President Obama. But my, my comment specifically is on Black liberation theology. How do you think Reverend Warnock will be different from what we've experienced in the black church around black liberation theology and in legislation in the Senate. 
I think that Dr. Warnock really will represent the holding together of the tension that we often see in the Black church. It's a theology that uh, fits well within Christian orthodoxy. Most African-American Christians affirm what we would call a fairly orthodox belief um, of the Trinity, for example, of God or, or, or Jesus. And yet it is politically and socially liberal. So you have Dr. Warnock um, being unequivocal in the fact that he is a pro-choice pastor. And so what I think I like about what I'm seeing with Dr. Warnock is that he really is not only a student of liberation theology, but we have to name the greatest liberation theologian of them all, which is the late Dr. James Cohn. And so Dr. James Cohn, along with a cohort of other African-American theologians in the 1960s and the 1970s, simply said this. They said, if God is not for us, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, then we've got to do a better job of telling people who God is. And so I think we're going to really see someone who is not going to be ashamed of his faith in terms of the office of Dr. Warnock, but someone who is also going to be incredibly progressive in his politics. I see that he's going to be introducing legislation, prison reform, perhaps even prison abolition during his time in Senate. He sees that as a tenet of his faith in as much as that's also a political position. I think that we have to be ready for the fact that the late Dr. Cohn is also going to be a part of this discussion as Dr. Warnock's teacher, but as one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century as well. Thank you so much. That was a great question. And finally, Dr. Pierce, many consider today a day of service, of giving back by volunteering in some way. Maybe challenging to do that right now. What do you typically do to honor Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? I love that people do this day of service, but I remind people that Part of what King calls us to do is to think about our own complicity in um, what's happening in our nation. So there are people who cannot do service projects right now, but I think all of us can ask ourselves, where have we been silent when we should speak? It isn't so much that King condemned white racism. He did, in fact, do that. But he condemned white silence. He condemned when people were quiet when they should have spoken up. Every one of us has a voice, whether that's through social media, whether that's in our families, whether that's in our communities. If all of the people had talked to their family members about the election and told the truth, I doubt we would have seen the insurrection we've seen at the Capitol building last week. So I am suggesting that in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King, we can no longer be silent about racism, about microaggressions, about the ways in which we do harm because we are afraid to speak out. I tell people, speak the truth, even if your voice shakes. Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce is the first female dean of the Howard University School of Divinity. She's also a professor of African-American religion and literature. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's just a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button. And thanks.